Christ? And how do we know that He was raised from the dead? How can we be sure that this really happened? Again, Christianity ultimately stands or falls on this event. If, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then His crucifixion on the cross was just another crucifixion. And the Romans crucified a lot of people. Not only in the first century, but in centuries leading up to it and centuries after it. Uh, the the cruci- crucifixion as a form of capital punishment was, I believe, invented by the Phoenicians, but it was developed and perfected by the Romans. The Romans were a very civilized, sophisticated people. Uh, we derive a lot of our forms of government from the Romans. Uh, they took from the Greeks. Uh, they were also incredible engineers. They built you know, roads, aqueducts. I mean, many of their structures are still standing. If you go to Rome today, uh, you can still find things 2,000 years old. You find Roman ruins all over Europe, actually, that are still standing. Uh, and they were very good at order. They kept an orderly uh, civilization. And as the Roman Empire expanded you know, out of Rome to all of the barbarian nations, what they would typically do is they would conquer these nations, and then they would set up a government uh, of theirs, occupy it, they would tax the people there, make you, if you were a local like the Jews, uh, pay for the Romans' roads and the armies, etc. But they would also uh, enforce the law very strictly to keep order. They were all about order. Maybe you've seen the, uh, the, the Latin uh, saying Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that went on for hundreds of years. Well, that came through uh, the enforcement of capital punishment, uh, a lot of law, And crucifixion was one way of subduing the wild nations. Now, if you were a Roman citizen, you were not allowed to be crucified because it was such a brutal and torturous form of execution. Uh, You you would be beaten, you'd be flogged, which sometimes would kill the person, and then you would be put upon a cross, uh, hoisted up outside of the city so that people could see you, uh, kind of like we did in the Old West, you know, when we would hang people uh, so that everybody in public could see that's what happens if you cross the law. Uh, the Romans did that, but by crucifixion. So you were nailed up to this cross, and you would suffocate slowly. It was a horrible way to die. Uh, you would be dehydrated, and you would have to hoist yourself up, you know, all day long just to get a breath until finally you just expired. And they would, do, they would do this so that when you came into the city, you, you would see people on crosses, some dead, some alive, and the message was pretty clear. Um, Pax Romana is serious. Don't, don't try to cross them. In the days of uh, Jesus, in the first century, there were a lot of insurrectionists, a lot of freedom fighters, uh, patriots of Israel who wanted to be the next Judas Maccabeus and overthrow uh, the Romans, you know, just as the old patriotic songs foretold, or, uh, used to tell of how the Jews fought uh, Antiochus Epiphanes hundreds of years before that. So the bottom line is, there were a lot of crucifixions. And Jesus was one of those crucifixions. 
Now, he wasn't crucified for being an insurrectionist or being a freedom fighter. Uh, He was crucified for a reason uh, that Pilate couldn't really understand. Remember, Pontius Pilate is the appointed governor by Rome to oversee Palestine uh, on behalf of Rome. And he doesn't doesn't really get why the Jews want this guy uh, crucified when the only charge, really, as we'll hear tonight in tonight's service, uh, is blasphemy. Uh, Bottom line is, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And there's witnesses to that effect. And not only in the Bible, but even external witnesses outside of the Bible. There's people who said, yes, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified. It's a historic fact. Whether or not you're a Christian, people, uh, many historians, they, they agree. Yes, there once upon a time was somebody in history named Jesus of Nazareth, and he died on the cross. The question is, did he rise from the dead? If he did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is false. And we have no reason for believing the things that Jesus said because he said over and over again that he would rise from the dead on the third day. So that makes him either a liar because he said he would rise and he didn't, or he was a lunatic, he thought he would rise and he didn't, or if he did rise, he's the Lord. Those are our only three options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. What is not on the table is, uh, he was a good man, but he wasn't God. He was a good man, but he didn't rise from the dead. No, if he didn't rise from the dead, he was either crazy or he wasn't telling the truth. But if he did rise from the dead, that means we can trust the Bible. And that's why we're Christians. We're not Christians because it works for us. We're Christians because Christianity is true, because something happened. And that means that the promise of forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life are true. We can believe them because of the resurrection. Well, what, on what basis can we believe that the resurrection happened? That's why we go through these five E's to help us remember. Because, you know, sometimes when you're trying to give reasons for remembering, it becomes difficult. Now, the first three we've gone over the last two weeks. What's the first reason? What's the first reason? Okay. There we go. I, you know, we're, we're doing this so we, we, we can remember. So work with me here. Make me feel like you learned something the last two weeks, okay? It makes me feel good. Uh, and who, who did not dispute this fact? The Romans and the Jews. And why is that important? Right, they're not sympathetic witnesses. You know, if uh, all the Christians are going around saying it's an empty tomb, well, that's one thing. But the Romans and the Jews, they've got nothing to gain by that tomb being empty. In fact, they got a lot to lose. Uh, the Romans were responsible for keeping that tomb full. I mean, they're concerned about order and their reputation. The Jews are concerned about a false teaching going around, saying that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. So we call, this, we call these hostile witnesses. Hostile witnesses, you know, in a court case are those who don't have something to gain by giving their testimony uh, to the, uh, the plaintiff or the defendant, and this is exactly what they're doing in the case of the empty tomb. The tomb was, an empty, well, the tomb was empty, and the, the Jews and the Romans never disputed that. When you're speaking with somebody uh, about Christianity, put it in a question. Say, well, what do you do about the empty tomb? 
Have you ever considered the fact that neither the Jews nor the Romans disputed the empty tomb? And this puts to rest many of the, the silly theories, you know, like, well, the women just went to the wrong tomb. The Jews and Romans could have produced the body, and Christianity would have died. Or, uh, you know, well, Jesus had a twin brother. I mean, these are, the, these are the theories that are floated sometimes by Ivy League professors. It's incredible. Uh, you know, well, they could, have gone to the, they could have gone to the tomb and produced the body, and there, it would have ended. So the tomb was empty. The question is, where did the body go? Well, what's the next E? Okay, so you have eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses corroborate a story, right? You need an eyewitness if you're going to build a case, uh, you know, against or for somebody. And in this case, who were the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Lord? Right, so I always say the 12 and the 500. So he appears, as, as Jesus says, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Write that up on the board. That's probably the most important passage on the resurrection, even though it's dealing primarily with our future resurrection of the body. Uh, Paul connects it to Jesus' resurrection, and he says, when Jesus was raised on the third day, he appeared to Peter, then to the, the twelve together, and then to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom are, were still alive at the time when Paul wrote that, which was probably the mid-50s of the first century. Now that's incredible, right? Because if you're going to start a legend, you, you don't start a legend in the place where the legend was supposed to have occurred. And you don't do it at the time when there are still hundreds of witnesses to this. I mean, if it's, if it's just a legend, okay, uh, I believe in a unicorn, and there are more than 500 people who saw the unicorn, and it appeared, you know, just 20 years ago here in San Diego, you can go talk to all these people. Uh, that's going to be a lot harder to prove than... Well, once upon a time, people saw unicorns. None of them are alive to tell you about it, but, uh, you know, it's just a nice story nonetheless. Uh, no, this is a, a, an event that had been seen by people, and they were still alive in the first century and could tell you about what they saw. And remember, it wasn't a resuscitated body, but a resurrected body, a glorified body. So the tomb was empty. There were eyewitnesses, and these eyewitnesses, what happened to them? This is the third E. The apostles, ETA. Enduring transformation of the apostles. Now, why is this important? Because, remember, where were the apostles when Jesus was crucified. They're hiding. Why? They're afraid, as we're going to see in Luke 22 this evening. As soon as Jesus is arrested, there's a moment of bravado there. Okay, they pull out swords, and, uh, you know, they try to free Jesus. Jesus says, knock it off. You know, what are you guys doing? And uh, 
tells him, you know, don't, you're not to have the sword. Um, I'm going to the cross. And uh, once they see Jesus carried away in handcuffs, now they all scatter. They run for their lives. And, uh, you know, Peter, the guy who did the hacking, he even denies Jesus three times. So they're all hiding. They're afraid. They're afraid of the Romans. They're afraid of the Jews. They don't want to get killed. They don't want to get arrested. They don't want to get cast out of the synagogue. They don't want their lives to be ruined. Okay? They're trying to preserve their lives. Then Jesus appears to them. And when the Holy Spirit gives them boldness, now they go out proclaiming the good news, preaching the good news. These guys who were hiding, these guys who were cowards, now at the Feast of Pentecost, this annual feast where everybody shows up at the city of Jerusalem, these guys get up and stand, they stand up in front of everybody and start preaching the gospel. Now they don't care. They're, they're not afraid. They have been transformed. Why? Because they saw Christ raised from the dead. And so, you know what? You can kill me if you want. I believe the promise of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, who lived and died and was raised again. That's what they proclaim. They preach the gospel, and the gospel is the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And they're transformed for the rest of their lives. Think about the Apostle Paul. He is Saul of Tarsus, who has a a profitable career as a Pharisee, highly trained, hates Christianity. In Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus with arrest warrant papers to arrest these Christians, to execute them, and Jesus appears to him. And he is transformed, and he leaves that life for a life of apostleship. How long was he an apostle from Acts 9 until the time he died? About 30 years. What were those 30 years like for Paul? Did he have a good life? It was no fun. It was no fun. He was getting around. You read Acts. He goes on three missionary journeys, and those missionary journeys, he doesn't make a bunch of money. He, he doesn't have a big house. He doesn't have any house. Uh, he, he has nothing. What would possess a guy to give up everything that he had and, and for a life like this that's so difficult and so hard for 30 years? And then he gets thrown in prison. He's beaten five times. He's left for dead. He's whipped. He has people abandon him. Why would he do it? Because he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And it leads him to his death. And remember, all these apostles, they're eventually martyred. Paul uh, as uh, church history seems to attest, uh, was beheaded in Rome. He would have been beheaded, not executed, being a, a, a Roman citizen himself. The point is, is that their transformation, their transformation endured. And why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. I always come back, when I, when I ask myself, why am I a Christian? I often come back to Paul. How do I explain How do I explain this guy who gave up what he had for 30 years of preaching the truth, and that's all he did? And the rest of the apostles. How do you explain that? I've never heard an explanation for that. Well, they just wanted to believe. This is what I've often heard. They so wanted to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And then I get, say again, the tomb was empty. They could have produced the tomb or the, the body. Well, they must have stole the body then. Right. So they stole the body, got rid of it, started concocting this tale, and then go 30 years of getting whipped and imprisoned for something they know isn't true. Why? To make lots of money to have big houses. They didn't have that. It doesn't make any sense. There is no explanation. The only explanation is that he really was raised from the dead, and they saw it. Well, maybe the, tomb, maybe the body was stolen, and then they all hallucinated. Yeah, maybe aliens came and took Jesus away. Maybe the dinosaurs got him. Okay, I mean, now, now we're just reaching, okay, when we have evidence. Let's just look at the facts. And see, this is why oftentimes what it comes down to is I don't want the facts. Oftentimes with people, you know, they'll ask questions. Well, what about this? What about that? And I'll say, well, do you want answers? Because oftentimes people don't want answers. They just want an excuse so they can go on living as they want to without submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. But guys, if Christ was raised 2,000 years ago, we better bend the knee because we will bend the knee one way or another eventually. We'll either do it in, in submission to him now with his arms open saying, come to me, all ye who labor, and I will give you rest. Or we will do it when we face judgment on the last day. And so it's much better to come to him now and, and know him as our brother in the Lord. Uh, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, enduring transformation of the apostles. Okay? Any further questions on that before we jump into the last two? So the last two, now let me say, these first three are really the most important. If you can remember those first three, you're, you're in good shape. Um, but I just add a couple more uh, because I think they're interesting. The, the fourth one is what I like to call explanation of Old Testament prophecy. Um, you know me, I like to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. And in other words, the resurrection is not some isolated event that just happened out of nowhere. It doesn't really mean that much. No, this is, this is something that the whole thrust of biblical revelation and redemptive history attests to. Okay? And it's important that we understand that there was an expectation of the bodily resurrection of God's people on the last day. Okay? So there were little hints here and there in different places. Um, well, first, I'll, I'll give a couple from the prophets. One of my favorites is Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. As Isaiah, the prophet, is coming to the people of God and proclaiming judgment for their sin, he's also giving hope in God's promise and talking about a Savior who would come. And in many places, he talks about a resurrection. And here, in Isaiah 25, he says this in verses 6 through 9, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, which means not just the Jews, but Gentiles too, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, 
the veil that is spread over all nations? What is the, what is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations? Death. That affects everybody. You know, there are certain things that connect all people together. There are certain things, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, what language you speak, what part of the world you're in, there are certain things that we have alike. And one is that we all have to face death. And we know the, we know the grief of death. We know the grief of those whom we love who've died. And we, and we know that we will die one day. And, that, and that it's a horrible thing. Well, where did death come from? Death came from God's curse on sin from the beginning. We were not meant to die. When God created Adam and Eve, he did not create, create them to die. Death is the consequence of sin. He said, in the day that you eat of that tree, in the day that you sin against me, you shall surely die. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they began to die physically. And so all of us, from the moment we're born, are on really a funeral march to our death. Every day we get closer because of the curse against our sin. But there was a promise, okay, in the Old Testament, and there's many, that uh, that would be overturned. Really, the first promise is in Genesis 3.15, where God says that he would send one to crush the serpent's head and essentially bring man to that tree of life that Adam failed to reach. And here, Isaiah is talking about that. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces because we cry when someone dies. We hate death. It's unnatural. It's foreign. It's hostile. It grieves our heart because there's somebody we love that we won't see anymore. It, we feel like death took a bite out of us. And here the promise is, God will take a bite out of death. He's going to overturn. There will be a day when nobody, when nobody dies. A day when his people will live forever. In bodies, here on earth, living forever. In joy. Without fear. Without frustration. And without tears. Without pain. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. Verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the Old Testament has places like this that speak of a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 is another one. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And these are important because, you know, these are the ones that the critics of the resurrection, those who don't believe the Bible, that come on TV usually around Easter time, you know, one of the networks will have some program about the resurrection of Christ, and John Dominic Croissant will come on, and he'll talk about how if you put a video camera in the tomb, you wouldn't have seen anything, um, and he's going to try to poke holes in the resurrection. They never interact with the Old Testament. They never, they never interact with the fact that there's this promise that there would be a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall rise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be time of trouble such as never has been seen, never has, has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is this promise of people rising from the dead to everlasting life. Okay? That's why when you get to John chapter 11 and that story where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, remember when he talks to Lazarus' sister, Martha, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, he says, your brother will rise again. Martha said, John 11, verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she was expecting this resurrection that Isaiah talked about, that Daniel talked about, that, that some of the Psalms talked about. What does Jesus respond and say? One of his most famous sayings right there. And she says, well, I know that he'll rise on the last day. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. She says, or he says, do you believe this? So there's this resurrection promised in the Old Testament, okay? This great resurrection of all God's people, and we're still waiting for that to happen in the last day. But in order for that to happen, there first must be the Messiah who comes to suffer for our sins, as the Old Testament says, Isaiah 53, so on and so forth, but then who would also rise from the dead. Psalm 16 also, or, uh, yeah, Psalm 16 also uh, prophesied of the resurrection of the Messiah, where it says this, David says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, hell, or the grave, or let your Holy One, that is the Messiah, see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, eternal life, eating and drinking and laughing and working and resting and playing, enjoying life as we were meant to enjoy. With people that we love, and above all, in the presence of the Lord, forever and ever, is promised. But it comes through the, through the Holy One, not seeing corruption. And Jesus didn't see corruption. How long does it take for a body to decay? About three days. And Jesus' body saw no corruption. On the third day, he rose. He is the first fruits, as Paul says, of the whole harvest. Because they're connected. He's like the tip of an iceberg that just just sticks out of the water that's connected to this mass that's submerged. We are like that mass waiting to be raised again on the last day. All who put their faith in Christ through the history of the world will be raised on that day to everlasting life because of what Christ accomplished. And so the Old Testament has this, this thrust that speaks about what Jesus would accomplish. In fact, again, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Um, sometimes we forget when Eve got her name. 
Adam never called Eve, Eve, in the garden. Her name was just woman. (laughs) Isha is the name in uh, Hebrew. Uh, When does Adam name his wife? And Adam names his wife Eve. Again, sometimes our Sunday school lessons have tweaked our understanding of the Bible. Yeah, it wasn't an apple. You're confusing the biblical revelation with Snow White. It never says it was an apple. It might have been a mango, for all we know. It was just a fruit. And he never calls her Eve in the garden. When does he name her Eve? After God's promise that he would send a Savior who would bring them to life. Because death was the consequence of their sin. And so it says that, and he named the woman Eve, why? Because she was the mother of the living. Through her would come the one who would bring them to glorified life, symbolizing the tree of life. In other words, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about what Christ would accomplish. It's about his life, death, and resurrection, and we're to place our faith in him. And the Old Testament even testifies of that. One more from the Old Testament that I want to um, draw your attention to. Uh, Leviticus 23. Turn to Leviticus 23. I know people always complain about Leviticus. And uh, I think a couple of people testified to me or, or confessed to me, Pastor, I was reading through the Bible and I was chugging along in Genesis and, Revel- uh, Genesis and Exodus. I got to Leviticus. It was like... <laughs> and it just stopped. Um, here's, a, here's a quick remedy for you. If you're going through Leviticus and you just find it dull as all get out, take a pen and underline every time through the book that it says, make atonement. That always blesses me, that God would provide atonement. I don't know how many. One of these days I'll count it all up. But there are also great prophecies in Leviticus. And one is here in Leviticus 23, in chapter, or, or, uh, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I, am going, that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. See, normally we read through that and we say, you know, Yon, it's another, it's another feast you know, all these regulations. It's like reading, you know, California Penal Code. And, you know, you're trying to keep your eyes open. But they all testify about Christ. So why does Paul call Jesus the first fruits? Well, it goes back to this. You know, in other words, you're a Jew. You're planting your, your field. And uh, come harvest time, the first fruits pops up. You're going to give thanks to the Lord. You're going to take that sheaf, bring it to the priest, The priest waves it before the Lord so that you would be accepted. And what day was he to do that? The day after the Sabbath. What was the day after the Jewish Sabbath? First day of the week. So connect it to Christ. Christ is raised from the dead, the first day of the week, and he ascends into heaven. Why? To be be, uh, our representative so that we would be accepted. And this is ultimately why Paul is using that imagery in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 of Christ being the first fruits of the whole harvest. 
We are connected. It's because of what he accomplished that we are accepted, not because of what we have accomplished. And so the Old Testament has this imagery that the New Testament uses to explain the resurrection. And in many ways, this is why the resurrection took the disciples by surprise. They, they believed in a bodily resurrection on the last day, but they didn't understand that there would be a first fruits to the harvest, and that first fruits would be Jesus. Judaism was really the only religion in the ancient world that held a firm belief in the resurrection of the body, unless you were a Sadducee. It was founded on the hope of the promised Messiah, who would come at last to crush the serpent's head and open the way to the tree of life, reversing death. And so, what the Creator God did in raising Christ is both the model and the means of what He will do for all of His redeemed people on the last day. But this whole Old Testament has a thrust that moves toward the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One more E, and that is external witnesses. Sorry for the chicken squirrel here. What I mean by external witnesses are those outside of the Bible. So, uh, these things are what the Bible testifies of. Okay, is there any evidence outside of the Bible uh, that there was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, whom people were saying died and was raised again from the dead? And the answer is yes, there is. Again, this is a historical question. This is not just a question of, well, how do I feel in my heart? This is a question of what happened in history. What happened? Well, here, here are some external witnesses or external evidence. And they're from hostile witnesses. Not, these are non-Christians. So Josephus, probably the most respected Jewish historian from the first century, he mentions Jesus' crucifixion. Antiquities 33.3. Philo of Alexandria from the first century wrote a history of the Jews that records that Christians claimed that Christ was raised from the dead. It's in his epistles, volume 10, chapter 96. And that the Jewish authorities also were saying that the body was stolen. So you have here at least outside witnesses saying, yeah, there was a guy who was crucified. Yeah, and people are claiming that he was raised from the dead. The Talmud a book of Jewish oral tradition and commentary dating from the 2nd century, it mentions the crucifixion of Jesus. Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, Roman historians from the 1st century, said that the whole controversy of Christianity was over this Christ who is said to have been raised from the dead. So, I mean, that you have people that are credible historians from the 1st century documenting that, yeah, there's people going around saying he was raised from the dead. The question is either he was or he wasn't. And so that, that's another good question. Or, or, yeah, it is a good question to present when somebody says, well, you're just providing this stuff from the Bible. Do you have any outside witnesses? Well, actually, yeah. Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, they, they, they all mention this event of the crucifixion 
and resurrect. I mean, they didn't believe that he was raised. They were, as historians, they weren't telling you what to believe. They were just stating there are people saying this. The question is, was he or was he not? And that's where we want to look at the evidence of those who claim to be eyewitnesses. Either they were lying, either they were lying, or they were crazy, or they were telling the truth. Those are your options. Those are your options. And there's been people in history who have, even in recent history, said, well, let's gather all the evidence and let's see if we can reconstruct you know, the crime scene, so to speak. So Simon Greenleaf, he set out to put the resurrection on trial. He's a non-believer, said that I'm going to prove that Jesus was not raised from the dead simply by pulling all the evidence from the Bible, from the external witnesses. I'm going to build the story, rebuild the story, to prove that it didn't happen. And in the process of doing that, what happened to Simon Greenleaf? He became a Christian. He said, you know, it's really true. It happened. He's not the only one. This has happened many times with, with educated people. Pinchas Lapid, uh, a Jewish author, historian, says about the resurrection, the only, after he did the same thing, pulled all the evidence, he said, the only explanation I can come up with is that Jesus rose again on the third day. Yet he won't believe that he's the Messiah. He says, I'm not saying that's the Messiah, but based on the evidence, he was raised from the dead. He must be some kind of prophet. And yet still there are people who refuse to believe in the resurrection. Why? Why? Because of the hardness of heart that does not want to submit to God. That's why. We're too afraid of what we're going to give up. We're too afraid that Following Jesus means giving up something. When the truth is, giving up our life, well, we get everything in exchange. Eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, freedom, peace, hope. And the promise of a resurrection. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers to us. Christianity says, go investigate the evidence. We have nothing to hide. Ask questions. The evidence stands. Bring it on, is what Christianity says. The meaning of the resurrection is a theological matter. The meaning, but the fact of the resurrection is a historical matter. And so we can go and see if this is factual. Now the question is, what's the meaning? And that gives us the sixth E, in a sense, which is eternal life. That's the meaning. If, this, if the resurrection happened, if this in fact is true, then we have every reason to believe that this is true. God has provided it to us because these things were not done in a corner, as the apostles said. It's been done out in the open. The question is, do we believe it? Any questions this morning? Yeah, Al. Right.
Right. Well, in one sense, it did explode. I mean, here we are, 2,000 years later in San Diego. Yeah. Right. Right, right. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there, yeah, I think that there was an explosion in some sense. I mean, remember that they said of the apostles in the book of Acts, these are those who turned the world upside down. I mean, and so it was spreading like wildfire, and the Jews were freaked out about that. You know, everywhere Paul goes, he goes into synagogues proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth. And so you do have people, I mean, there were 3,000 saved uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, it begins to spread to the ends of the earth. I mean, it goes all the way. Uh, Acts begins in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome. And, uh, and so there, in one sense, we can say, you know, it did explode. You know, in another sense, though, I mean, you know, when we think, why isn't it? I mean, you think that, why didn't everybody believe when, as soon as they saw, right? But then again, why didn't the Jews themselves believe when they went through the Red Sea, when they had manna, when they saw, you know, water from the rock? It's because of the hardness of the human heart. And, that we, and we always have to remember that, guys. Even as we go through these things with a, a loved one, you got to remember this. Unless the Lord opens the heart, you'll never convince somebody. Somebody was asking me about um, Josh McDowell's book on, you know, Case for Christianity. I think it's fine, but the, the thing I don't really like about that method that Josh McDowell uses, I mean, he brings up some good evidences, but there's a form of apologetics called evidentialism, which almost says if you can just present enough evidences, you can reason a person into the kingdom. When in fact, that can't happen. You can present evidence to help person think and reason, yes. However, it takes the Holy Spirit to open the heart. And so in many ways, this is sort of pre-evangelism. It's also helpful for our own faith. It's helpful for my faith as a Christian. I come back again and again to the fact that, well, Christ was raised from the dead. But if the Lord doesn't open the heart, that's why you'll have people who saw Jesus and still didn't believe. Or Pinchus Lapide, who says, yeah, he rose from the dead, but I'm not going to say he's the Messiah. I mean, that's, that, that just goes to show the Holy Spirit has to do that work. Yeah, Angela. Right. 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 You know that that's a very good point. It goes back to what we heard last Sunday evening. The temple was destroyed, and they have never had sacrifices since since eighty seventy. For almost 2,000 years. So in one sense, yeah, it, it, Judaism has fallen and, uh, because this is the completion 
of Judaism. All right, let's stop there. If you have more questions, um, you can come up and I'll stick around for a few minutes. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we heard this morning. We thank you also for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, seen by many witnesses, which ultimately gives us a living hope in this life. Thank you, Father, for your love, your grace, your mercy to us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, in whom we trust and put our hope. Amen.